Mallorca, buenos dias, que onda? Buenos dias, mi amigo, Good. que tal? Yeah, tu, es que tu va bien, you see. <laughs> Whenever I speak Spanish, I go into French. I know someone who had like a Spanish oral exam on the same day as the French oral exam. I can busk Spanish. Gotcha, gotcha. My Spanish isn't great. Uh, so we've been out here perhaps just over two years now. But uh, it's coming along. But, um, you know, where we live on the um, Costa Blanca, uh, most people tend to speak English anyway. And if you try to speak a bit of Spanish, then because they're so polite, they answer you in English. And so it just sort of compromises your learning a bit. But, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. That's good. So is this um, eternal? Are you ever coming back? Uh, no, don't plan to, no, no. All right. Does it um, have to do with the vote five years ago, or were you planning anyway? No, no, we were planning to come out anyway. Um, being pre-Brexit made it a lot easier, a lot less complicated, but no, we were coming out anyway. Basically, I'm, I'm sort of, when I'm on air, I'm 65 this year, and my wife's a couple of years younger, and we've both got to sort of the situation at work where we thought, well, we can, you know, so like we had a big house, four bedroom house that the kids had left. Both kids had gone away and been, uh, got married. Then we sold the big house, decided to come out here, cut down on the size. It was a fairly simple life, and uh, yeah, no regrets really. Other than this pandemic, of course, means we can't get back to see the kids and the grandkids. Well, yeah, that was want, so that well. was exactly my question because you are an abuelo. I've spoken to a few abuelos, but yeah, how is <laughs> how is little Polly? Polly is wonderful. I mean. Um, Fortunately, we speak to the kids. Uh, Polly's is my, my son's daughter, and we speak to to Greg and my, da- my daughter's Megan, and she's got a little girl, little girl as well called Eve. And we speak to them pretty regular on um, on WhatsApp, mm-hmm. uh, and for do we do FaceTime a lot. So you know, we have that sort of conversation, but it's just not the same. We haven't been back to the UK since uh, Christmas last uh, the year before last, as mm-hmm. it were. So it's when the, when the grandkids are really young, you're missing a lot of time. But I mean, it's just can't be helped. I mean, in the great scheme of things, you know, the pandemic's caused more hassle than me not being able to go back to the UK. Quite right. I was really lucky. Both my sets of grandparents, uh, Grandpa Joe passed away when I was two. He was behind Suits You, the men's tailors. Suits You. That's the family business. So if you've ever bought a suit from there, thank you for contributing to my education. But my grandparents lived within five miles, so I was lucky to see them all the time. Um, And it was my Grandpa Malcolm who... Uh, helped me fall for football because whenever I saw him, the conversation would always be Man United. And my Uncle Clive, my grandma's brother, is a 50-year, 55-year Watford fanatic. But I don't, yeah. have, don't have any Chelsea in my family. Uh, I, have been, I have been to the bridge um, in the Roman Abramovich era. I wanted, before we talked England and Holland, just to talk about Chelsea because we're talking on the 13th of April. Uh, yeah. Chelsea's next game is away at Brighton. Will you be staying up to watch? Yeah, well, we're, we're an hour ahead of the UK here, so the kickoff here will be nine o'clock, which is pretty regular for Spanish football anyway. I don't know what's about Spanish football, but yeah, we get the, um, especially the later um, stages of the European Cup, which Champions League. We get out on uh, Marvel Star over here, so yeah, I should be watching that game, no doubt at all. Of course. Um, I. I remember vividly, I went to my friend Elliot's house to watch the Bayern against Chelsea game and never has a side less deserved to win a game. As far as I remember, Munich were all over Chelsea. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, it's difficult to dispute what, what, what is plain and simple fact as you just related it. Um, that, that, I mean, it, it's interesting and we might sort of come on to this later. Um, but I've, I've uh, written a book about that... Um, 
which is coming out uh, in May next year, which will be the 10th anniversary of the 2012 Champions League um, tournament. Uh, it's called Out of the Blue, and basically it's, it's Chelsea's unlikely Champions League triumph, and it goes through the games there, and so many games when Chelsea could have, should, could have and should have lost Barcelona both legs. Um, but the Bayern Munich game was sort of crazy game. Not as, no, you've reminded me, my brother had just started working Canary Wharf and I said to him, do you want to watch the Chelsea-Barcelona game? We went to watch it in, it must have been a bar in East London, in Canary Wharf. And I remember Torres, as soon as he got the ball and had the acres of pitch, I thought, Torres? Torres? And then Gary Neville famously did the noise. Yeah. Have you spoken to Fernando Torres for the book? I haven't, to be truthful with you. No, I couldn't do my speech. When I write a book, I tend not to try to speak to players. I speak to a lot of commentators, journalists, just to get a different perspective on it. And I mean, I remember that goal, as you can imagine, distinctly. And uh, I was watching the game at home with my son. And uh, I remember saying, you know, we got the ball. I remember saying, you know, run it to the corner because he's not going to score. Why waste a bit of time? Because time was up. It's about the 90th minute. And uh, of course, what he'd done, this guy who would on this cement overcoat when he came down the M6 from Liverpool to Stamford Bridge suddenly forgot he was a Chelsea player and thought he was a Liverpool Torres and never ever looked like Messi never looked like Messi or even he's got, yeah he's got, he's got a magnificent um, reputation for scoring goals at the Camp Nou um, against um, against Barcelona and I was talking to one of the guys I spoke to about the book Ryan Baldy I don't know if you know Ryan Baldy the author I know of him um, yeah, well, he was he, he was there. He'd been taken by his father for a birthday present to the game. Not sorry, not that game. A game when Atletico um, visited the Camp Nou, and uh, he was a massive Barcelona fan. And he said Torres ruined the night because he scored two goals. But he always seemed to pick on Barcelona when he was uh, in his El Nino days for uh, Atleti. I guess some grounds just suit some players. And uh, as I say, in that moment, he never never looked like missing. Never looked like missing. It was. Remember that website, Has Torres Scored for Chelsea? Um, yeah. In the early example of internet humour. Uh, yeah, and that's, God, that's nine years ago. I also have a memory. Gosh, this is like a Proustian sponge of a podcast so far. Uh, by the way, we do serve Proustian, um, what was it, Madeira cakes. That's, um, that's served at the Football Library, which you do get your laminated Football Library card. You do have Brian Glanville shushing on it, although you can swap it for an old Chelsea figure. <laughs> that sounds very good. I'll set for Brian Glanville if I can. Uh, I mean, that's that's a pretty auspicious. Um, yeah. Sure, uh, you've got going there. Glanville in your pocket. Um, Two thousand eight. I was up at Edinburgh watching the Champions League final at the um, Pleasance Bar, and I okay. was standing next to my friend Sarah, and I was explaining the importance of Drogba getting sent off and John Terry slipping. I said, "Ah, what's happened there?" is that John Terry, the captain, leader and legend, has failed to win this game for Chelsea. Um, of course, it would have all been different had Drogba not been sent off. Um, how happy were you in 2012 because you'd broken this hoodoo, the European Cup hoodoo? Slightly, slightly happy, shall we say. No, I was ecstatic, basically, of course. Um, one of the people I spoke to about the, the Chelsea book was John Helm, who was commentating in 2008 and the final for ITV. And... Uh, he sort of said, you know, he felt desperately sorry for, um, for Terry uh, that he sort of missed, that, missed the penalty. You know, it just seemed like a quick fate. And then, of course, he missed the final afterwards as well in 2012. No, I don't um, remember that. I don't remember any of the memes. None of them. 
Yeah. He didn't have shin pads. Strangely enough, I mean, I've got a quote from John, he didn't have shin pads on. Apparently, the UEFA had sent a, 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 an email around to both clubs in the final to say um, all, all um, substitutes and suspended players, if they wanted to be part of the, of the, um, on, the on the pitch, they must wear full kit. Oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't Chelsea's idea, it wasn't Terry's idea. It was, I'll go into the book, I've got the, the, book, the email on the book. And it's always, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, um, he took a lot of stick for it. Uh, but afterwards, because you said how many, you know. But also, he did, did exactly the same. Well, Ramirez, who was, who was suspended, did exactly the same, as did um, Camp Liverpool. Ah, oh. oh, he scored against Benfica. Ah, oh, jeez. Ah, oh, straight in the head. It'll come back to it. But he, he, he also was suspended and uh, had four kits on, as did uh, Ivanovic. Terry inspires a lot of um, strong emotions. You either love If you're a Chelsea fan, you love him. If you're not a Chelsea fan, you hate him. And yeah, that's what's done. These things happen, but uh, I'm sure he's not too worried about it. He's got, he's got his, he's, he's won his medal. It's very much, he's our bastard, like Luis Suarez or, for me, Troy Deeney. Deeney's a bastard, but he's our bastard. Um, Indeed. This, so, yes, so I, I, I wish Chelsea luck tonight. Uh, this will go out in about six weeks, so we'll know if Chelsea have advanced to the final. Uh, what is Indeed. Chelsea? What is this football club? We know who owns it. We know who runs it. We know about the managerial hot seat, which is hotter than most. I mean, what is it? How how connected is it to the Ken Bates era? That's a good question, Johnny. I mean, what is Chelsea? Chelsea is my drug. I, you know, I love I love, love them and love them in equal measures. You know, they'll they break my heart, but you keep going back like it's a bit of my femme fatale. Um, I'm I'm sort of hooked on them. They're a club that uh, probably inspires more dislike than most others in the Premier League, perhaps until Manchester City's money turned up. You know, you say you mentioned about the managerial hot seat. There's not, there's not one model of winning trophies. Um, Chelsea, since Roman arrived, have won more trophies than Manchester United. So, you know, charging managers, as often as they do, nobody say it doesn't work, because I say their trophy hall is pretty impressive. So we have, I've got some names written down. Um, put these in order of the people you like. Conte, Tuchel... Benitez, the first incarnation of Mourinho, Di Matteo, the second incarnation of Mourinho, and Frank Lampard. So who do you like the most and the least? Well, if you're looking for managers, I suppose you'd have to say that um, uh, Mourinho, first incarnation, it's probably too early to make a decision on two players, but I've been there for 13, 14 games. I mean, pretty impressive, other than that debacle against West Brom Jarby a couple of weeks ago. But um, yeah, I'd probably have to go there. I mean, Frank's a little different because obviously his major contribution to Chelsea quarters as a player. So if we're talking as a manager, although that again, his, his time there was, was, was probably been massively derided in as much as most of his term of the club, there was a transfer ban. And, you know, that, that was probably the best thing that happened to the club in a long time. Chelsea had won, and I can't the exact figures off the top of my head, but something like eight of the previous 11 FA Youth Cups. And I probably had, therefore, 70-odd young, promising players that never broke into the first team. Somebody went out on loan. But when, when uh, Frank had that transfer ban, he had to use the, the club's assets. So we had players like Rhys James, uh, Tammy Abraham, uh, Mason Mount, Callum Hudson-Odoi. Gilmore. So, so, Gilmore, yeah. I mean, so many, probably half a dozen or so came through the, to the, from the youth team and became established first-team players. And for a time, that team looked amazingly good. Frank, a lot of people 
do well by Frank did at Chelsea as a coach, but you know he did that. But that was put a lot of players through. The one name you perhaps missed out of, I always had a lot of time for, was Ancelotti. Oh, of course, um, yes. Yeah, he put, got he won us the double, got sacked the following year. It's just typical. I mean, um, obviously Di Matteo ranks very highly. wasn't there for a great amount of time, but you know won us the Champions League and got sacked the following year. There's a, there's a little bit of a theme going on with Chelsea managers, and they were that sort of thing. But yeah, so I'd, I'd, you'd have to put, you'd have to put Mourinho at the top. I'd have to put Benitez at the bottom and put all the rest of them around there. I think going to Benitez, but he was never, he never felt like a Chelsea manager. He was only there for a short time. Mm. It was always only, only ever going to be a short time. Part of me thinks that so Shishko Munoz, currently in charge of Watford, played under Benitez when he was at Valencia. Benitez doesn't have a job. I don't know why Watford aren't throwing money at Benitez when we get up. And by the time this comes out, I won't edit this out, Watford will be promoted. So hopefully Chelsea can come to Watford and lose 4-1 as they did a couple of seasons ago. This was the game that Bakayoko got sent off after about two minutes. And it did look like the Chelsea players wanted to get the manager sacked. And once again... It's, and by the way, thank you for Nathaniel Chalabar, who is, barring a couple of injuries, yeah. turning into a very, very good player. Oh, well, we should have gone to the promise yeah. I remember that Watford game. Um, I think Hazard's called quite late. And, mm-hmm. Brilliant uh, goal, but, yeah. But yeah, the, uh, the Spanish guy playing for Virginia scored twice against us. The guy yeah. came from Everton as well. Sensational. De La Fe, um, who has just, uh, he did a meniscus, so he's been out for the last few months. Yeah. One of these annoyingly talented players who, who sort of seems... Irritating the inconsistency as well, but on his day, he's almost unplayable. Watford are, are an interesting case in as much as they're owned by the Pozzi family, who also own Udinese, I believe, in Spain. Yeah, and used to and own Granada, yeah. Uh, there's a thing about about people who own football clubs now, and uh, this is people mind about Abramovich. Well, not Chelsea fans will mind about Abramovich. Not only because of what he's brought, but the, reason, but the way he considers Chelsea Football Club. For example, He's one of the few, very few people who bought a football club not to make money. The guys who are watered, and it's probably true of uh, 99% of other football clubs in the top few divisions in, in the UK, and, and even across Europe as well, people buy football clubs to make money. It's more important than silver to the people who own the clubs. Oh, very good. Um, well, the, the counter to that uh, is um, Wynne Jones and Smith at Norwich. I don't think they're making much yeah. money. As I said, 99%, you know, there'll always be exceptions. The guys at Portman City clearly are duty to make money. They've got enough pots of money. They're duty to, to make a reputation and uh, enhance their sort of PR, shall we say. But, and it's not true of everybody, but overwhelmingly. And it used to be said that the only way to make a, make a small fortune on your football club is to begin with a big fortune. Mm-hmm. But that's changed now. And uh, as there's so many of these sort of hedge funds, and I think that hedge fund has just purchased Ipswich Town. Um, I was reading yesterday, but it won't be a case of chasing trophies. It'll be a case of chasing money, and very much a case the same as with Newcastle and uh, you know the uh, probably the least popular club owner in English football, whose only requirement of that club is to stay in the Premier League. Well, isn't that Arsenal's model? Except for, for stay in the Premier League, it's compete in European competition. I guess so to some extent, but at least there's a little bit of ambition there. And and then you did did put a few pots on the way and uh, got them to the Champions League final as well. And you know we're we're winning for for a long, long time, even though we're playing with ten men. So yeah, to some extent, uh, yeah. As I say, it's probably true of of, of a lot of the vast majority of clubs that finishing in the Premier League, a certain uh, position, is worth more 
I've got a piece of paper to my left at the moment, which has the Premier League clubs in the bottom six less Sheffield United and the top seven in the championship less Norwich. If you add the two back in, that's a really good B League. At the moment, Burnley and Brighton are top of it, and at the bottom are Bournemouth and Barnsley. I would watch that league if if they just separated off. I've, I, in my book that I'm not here to talk about, I said that the top clubs need to do whatever they like. They've got the billions. Just go off and play in Qatar or on Mars. And Chelsea, I'm afraid, are included in that. And leave Watford and Bournemouth and clubs of a kind of B rank uh, to their own. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this, but you support a team that um, 40 years ago were not the top six and are now very much the top six. So that's probably why I asked what Chelsea are. If football teaches us anything, nothing is forever. Teams, clubs that are sort of punch on town, where once a dominant team, Sunderland wants a dominant team. For similar reasons, Sunderland wants to call the Bank of England club, um, going back to the sort of 50s. So, you know, football changes. I mean, 10 years ago, who'd have thought Manchester City would be in the situation they are now? People think, you know, they say, oh, well, the money will go away sometime. Roman Abramovich will go away sometime. Nothing is forever. And, you know, you talk about top clubs going away, and we did a podcast not too long ago on these football times about a potential for a European Super League. And uh, I was sort of a lone voice in the wilderness saying, you know, it might happen, but it can never, it can never last. So, you know, if you're talking about a, a Super League where you've got the two Milan clubs, Juventus, Bayern Munich, PSG, uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man United, Man City, I don't know, all those sort of clubs, clubs that are used to winning things. Now, in a league of 20 clubs, perhaps all, 10, 18, whatever. Only one club could win. Only one club could win a league. By definition, there's going to be somebody at the bottom as well. Now, all these clubs have earned masses of money through followers to them, engendered loyalty from their fans, because they win things. Now, if that stops happening, and by definition, all but one of those clubs, it will stop happening, that's going to disappear, and the money they earn will quickly become... Um, less and less, and they'll regret what they did. And, and it, it can't, it can't work. It can't work. But you mentioned about all clubs go, you hope clubs will go away and go and play somewhere else. It's not going to happen, Johnny. It's not going to happen, mate. It's certainly not for any length of time because it's just it's unsustainable. It is very interesting that Javier Tebas, whom you'll be very familiar with, living in Spain, is Indeed. now on the UEFA Exec Committee. I think that's fascinating <laughs> because he is militantly against. Um, upsetting La Liga. He is because obviously if Real Madrid and uh, Barcelona went away, La Liga would be become a massively poorer <laughs> league. I mean, you know, it's like in Scotland, like losing Celtic and Rangers yeah. if they ever went to play in, in the uh, in the English system. So what's what UEFA will do uh, are doing, and there's, there's I mean, Tim talk about it at the moment, adopting what they call this Swiss system. Now I don't know fully how this works, but basically it involves more clubs qualifying for the Champions League playing more games and even if you get lose lose a couple of games you still got a chance like a repertoire to qualify so that's the sort of buy off you way for uh, to give to preserve because obviously if there's a, a breakaway super European Super League outside of the auspices of UEFA they become weak as well so everybody's sort of um, trying to guide, guide their own uh, back garden and uh, make sure that the uh, the goal doesn't run away mm. well one good place to go 
uh, to read about these times in football, handbrake. I've spoken to Stu Horsfield. I've spoken to Stephen Scragg. Which one of the Holy Trinity are you, Father, Son or Holy Ghost? <laughs> well, both, um, I guess both um, Steve and Stu are probably, uh, I don't know, late 30s. I'm, I'm probably 30 years older than they are, so I'm probably the father. They're probably uh, they're probably both the son of the Holy Ghost, but uh, yeah, I mean we've got, I, I mean they're, they're terrific guys, and uh, you know I'm getting so well with them, and we talk I don't know two or three times most weeks with uh, podcasts, and uh, it's it's interesting the podcasts we do. We uh, we pick these up. I mean we were first guested on uh, on pods, we usually run by the late great wonderful Jim Hart, and uh, when Jim sort of passed away, sadly we sort of. Uh, I decided for a while and sort of grew into it, and uh, it's become a river monster. <laughs> it is. I mean, I've you done know, over a hundred of these. I think you're up to over two hundred in the last well, four years. Be. Yeah, well, um, we've got a we've got a massive backlog to come out, Johnny. Um, we're releasing three a week at the moment, and uh, we've got we've got bookings uh, running up until late October this year scheduled. Uh, at two or three a week. So, I mean, it's, it's as I said, and we've got the, I mean, the, the Stephen and Stu and myself are probably the sort of the, sort of the main culprits, but we've also got uh, Aidan Williams, uh, as with us now, who comes on and does parts with us, uh, Paul McParlin, Lewis Henderson, who is the technical genius as well as, um, as, 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 as the pods. So we've got a few more people sort of chipping in, but I mean, as I say, you know, we, we've got two or three a week up until, you know, not getting towards the end of the year already, and, uh, Jamie Moore as they come along. It's a hell of an offering, hell of a programme. And I uh, came across, I've been dealing more with Omar for the last 10 years. Uh, Although I've latterly learned that Jim is a key part of it as well. And just the print magazines that are all in the football library, if not physically, then digitally, because they do sell out quickly. Um, The Uh, last one was on Onderlecht. Can you tell me what the next one is? Good. Um, I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to. Although we've got a, we do record a podcast on Tuesday for us, but we all. Also, oh, it's all the secrecy. In, mm, you know, well, I, by I the mean, time, uh, by the time this comes out, we will know. And you have a loyal. It's the fan base that these football times has because it's. Joe, it's organic. It's grown up, and by word of mouth, it's become this behemoth, and you you should be so proud of it. Well, I am to be. I mean, it's, it's a stunning team to be with. I mean, I mentioned after some of the guys there, but the whole team is much larger than that. But you couldn't meet a more supportive group. You know, we all help each other out, and uh, yeah, the magazines are, are, are amazing. Whenever they go out, it's sort of a couple of weeks, and people do this. They buy them as investments now. And I've seen magazines, uh, TFT magazines, on eBay for a hundred pounds. You buy, I think they're ten. I think they're ten pounds to buy on eBay for £100 and more. There was one, I think it was the Ajax one when it first went out, which was the first competition we did, was I think sold for £119. I mean, it's, it's very flattering, but we always say when, you know, to, when we do the, because um, we do a, a podcast recording for to promo for each of the mags, you know, getting, getting early guys don't like, because they're, they're absolutely off the shelf. And Omar only, only produces a limited number, which I, I guess, you know, is great because it keeps them sort of rarity value shall we say mm-hmm. as well but you say, as you mentioned you can't get the digital ones as well but there's something special about being able to as a guy in a library you'll know this there's something special about being able to hold something, something tactile that's a book or a magazine 
Well, yeah, because for the last 550-odd years, since Gutenberg and the Bible, we've been able to hold things. It is lovely to get a book, such as yours, by the way, for £3.50 on Kindle. But uh, More on which shortly. But just behind me, I've got shelves and boxes of football books, and just looking at them, it's like looking at old concert tickets. It brings back the memory. Uh, And I have been through a selection of your catalogue, at these football times, there's a very, very good piece on Gail Kakuta. Do you know where he plays now, Kakuta? He's moved on from Dijon. He is now... He, he didn't... This is your line. He didn't cut the mustard. An amazing player that never... That never I think it's a star that never showed. I can't remember the, the thing that... The, 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 the line I used the title, but an amazing, skillful player. And... When we signed him, when Chelsea signed him as a team, we, we, they, well, it cost us two transfer window bans mm. because he was either too young. I can't remember what the reason was or he was tied up with another club. There was um, no contract. There was no contract. He'd moved without a contract being agreed. Okay. okay. But there was, uh, I think he played three or four games for us and then he was loaned out. And sometimes, you know, people say about Chelsea loaning players out. Mason Mount went out on loan to Derby and come back a star. Rhys Jones went out on loan to Wigan and come back a star. Tony Abraham went out on loan to Swansea and came back as a star. You know, it's, it, it does work. Um, uh, Chris Jones, Andreas Christensen, although he's Danish, did, uh, came through our, our academy, went out and played two seasons in Germany mm-hmm. with Bernard Bremen, I think. Monken Gladbach. Monken Gladbach, yeah. And came back and as, as, as a star. Um, so sometimes these loan systems do work out, but um, Yalkakuta is pretty much the other way. So where, where is he playing then now, Johnny? Well, as believe it or not, he's on loan at Lons from Amiens. So he's, I don't know if he's ever stayed in a house longer than a year. He's been at Bayacano, Deportivo, he went to China, he went to Sabia, he was at Fulham, wasn't he at Bolton? And yeah. two transfer windows. And then Chelsea did it again. And that, so so you held on to all the Hazard money and brought in Hovert, Ziyech, Pulisic, or Pulisic was paid for beforehand, and then yeah. Werner. If you yeah. are Billy Gilmore, do you do yeah. what Phil Foden has done at Man City, which is train with David Silva and become England's future number 10? Or do you just go because you need to play football? What's Callum Hudson-Odoi going to do now? Well, I mean, they're, they're probably two slightly different, different situations. I mean, I thought it was that point. Callum Hudson-Odoi plays pretty regular now as a wing-back. He's been sort of converted because Chelsea played the back of three. And he plays, I won't say but by every game, but he plays most of the games. Billy Gilmore is a different situation. There again, his players do count through under Lampard. Uh, but he had uh, a bad knee injury. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't been back that long. And he's played a couple of games. And, um, but he's, I mean, there again, he's, what is he, 18, 19? He's still a kid, so he's got plenty of time in front of him. So at the time to sort of say, oh, there's no future for me, isn't when you're 18, 19, it's when you're 23, 24. But um, no, I think I think Gilmore will, will come through and play regular. And again, it all depends on how, on how things progress. But uh, an outstanding talent, an outstanding talent. I've seen him in FA Cup games and he does look good. And yeah. as long as he is fostered well, yeah. um, then so much the better. Talking about great Chelsea players, you wrote a piece about the partnership of John Terry, aforementioned, and Ricardo yeah. Carvalho. By the way, have you remembered the player who used to play for Liverpool and then moved to Chelsea, who was Portuguese? No, have you? No, I've got he, no idea. He got, he got a Mohican. Mo- he had a Mohican. Mireles. Mireles. Real Mireles. That's the guy. <laughs> uh, and, and, and 
and in that, in that tournament, by the way, Morelli, he played a lot of games under um, Di Matteo in the Champions League group. And he, I mean, for a guy who was, because he, we he kept this side Morelli's because uh, Tottenham wouldn't sell us Luka Modric. Although like, Luka Modric wanted to come to Chelsea, so they made really clear, money when he comes to Chelsea, but um, Daniel Levy wouldn't sell him. And, and we, we signed Morelli's on the last day of the transfer window as a sort of like a, when we got to sign into the body. Uh, but he was brilliant. Such an underrated player in that, mm. uh, in that run to the uh, Champions League. I don't know if TFT have done underrated players, but can I push for that? This year, that's a good one, actually. Yeah, we well, what we, t- we tend to do with series is because uh, well, we have sort of like Slack communities, communities on Slack, so we also took in ideas. Now, I was very sort of democratic about it, you know, and we'll, it doesn't come to vote, but it only comes to a consensus. And we've got, um, I think there's another series out, not, not too distant future, but from starts from the Middle East. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll suggest that, uh, Johnny. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. got that one. Um, yeah, I loved this piece about Terry and Carvalho. Uh, we will do more quizzing in the second half, but um, how many goals did they concede at home in the Mourinho season? Oh, no, you've got me. I, the short answer is I don't know, but it wasn't very many. I mean, was it something like 14 or something like that? It wasn't at home, very many. In the, at home in the league, six. Oh, right, six. I just went back 14 in the season, yes. Half a dozen. That's crazy, isn't it, really? Over 19 games. Obviously, what the, the other part of that, that triumvirate there was uh, Petr Cech. the great um, drumming goalkeeper, who is now in yes, charge no. of... Is he kind of like a PR bloke? At... No, he's not. He's director of football. Oh, OK. So it's it's more than just a PR bloke. Yeah. But but he was, will uh, be... In fact, yeah, very interesting. Go on. It was Czech who uh, uh, inspired, well, sort of suggested, pushed for, shall we say, the signing of um, Edward Mendy. Who came from Wren, as, as did Czech. We signed Czech from Wren under. Um, uh, Ranieri? Ranieri, the Jinkerman, yeah. I mean, I've never heard of Peter Czech, and yet he was. became one of the best goalkeepers in the world. So, yeah, I, I suppose it's a case of. Um, and, and then he looks. You know, if, if, if you're going to pick a guy to pick a goalkeeper, check in a bad judge, and, uh, you know, we, we put the world record. But the world record was on the goalkeeper in um, in Kepa, Aretha Balaga, who Kobe had bought from Athletic Club up in Bilbao, who looked a wonderful goalkeeper at first, but confidence for some reason went. He had a lot of family problems, apparently, oh, okay. as well. And that affected him, I don't know. But uh, Mendy looks, I think he's got something like in the 14 games, something like nine clean sheets or 10 clean sheets in 14 games. Something of that ilk. Amazing. And, and you've got to consider two goals the first dozen goal games and one was an own goal a misplaced back pass uh, so Mendy looks really talented um, very promising for the future well let us hope Touchwood that he doesn't make a mistake tonight are you home or away tonight? well strangely enough <laughs> this is uh, this is the weird thing when we played uh, Atletico Madrid in the last round we played what was nominally the the away leg in um, Romania oh yeah because there was problems back getting trouble between England and Spain and the home leg at home and now we're actually playing a Portuguese club we're playing they were playing the away leg uh, last week in Seville Seville in Spain and we're playing the home leg in Seville in Spain tonight so after playing a Spanish club and not being able to play in Spain in the next round we're playing a Portuguese club and playing both legs in Spain to explain that one to me Johnny biggest like well as someone who used to work for a major European football organisation, 
Um, compromises. Compromises and WHO advice. Uh, the Football yes, Library, of course, uh, is at the moment a creation of the mind, so anyone can travel uh, from anywhere in the world. And I hope there is a book, maybe not in English, but I can get it translated by a Portuguese to English scribe. Fernando Peiroteo. Oh, Peiroteo! Oh, the guy who played for uh, Sporting. Um, yeah, this is really fascinating. This is a guy who is uh, statistically the best goal scorer of all time. I had a lot of, I had a lot of um, reaction after this. No wonder. Uh, of, <laughs> I mean, it was part of a series, so it's a fairly short article. And most of the um, these football times articles have been produced. Pioneers. The Pioneers. The Pioneers, yeah. We're about 2,000 words. This, I think, for most of the series, we cut them down to about 1,000, 800 words to 1,000 words. So it wasn't that long. But this guy had an amazing record. He scored, uh, I don't know the figures, but ridiculous ratio of goals as well as, as the number of goals. And um, there was a guy, Luis Mateus, who is a, a journalist in Portugal uh, with Al Globo. And he got in touch with me, and I mean, he's been uh, he's out with the, with, the, with the Chelsea book, which is obviously when we played oh, Benfica. But there are quite a few, quite a few people from uh, Sporting started following me because they're on Twitter. And the thing happened, I wrote a piece about um, the guy at uh, Palmer, the Corelli, and a massive amount of fans follow um, Palmer fans follow me because of that. That's very uh, smart. Amazing. A situation. I, I wrote a piece about um, uh, Perugia. Um, this would be in the 70s, went to season undefeated in Serie A. I mean, Perugia, I'm not talking about AC Milan or Juve, um, a, a fairly Bangor provincial team. Um, they finished up finishing second, and I wrote this piece, um, and their captain was a guy called Fosio. His son got in touch with me, who is actually a journalist at uh, Gazzetta dello Sport in Italy. And there again, um, he's, he's, he's helped me all the time Giving sort of information about Italian football and quotations and, uh, and guidance. So it's amazing how one article can increase your contacts and how that can sort of develop. Yeah, because. Um, so, yeah, the Paratopia is amazing, yeah. It's, it, it, it is crass to follow Seth Blatter and say we're all part of a football family. We're not. We're human beings who like football. But we all breathe the same air and we all follow the same sport. This chap, Perateo, born in Angola, he was one of the pioneers. He once scored nine goals in a game. And then. When he managed the Portuguese national team, uh, he gave Eusebio his debut. He seems like the pivotal figure of Portuguese football before, um, not Mourinho, yeah. before Figo or Rui Costa yeah. or someone. Um, and it's just yes. the most amazing article. Well, thank you, Marty. I, I, I stumbled on it when I was researching the article. Um, but this is too good not to write. And the pioneers story series was going on at the time. And I was going to write about somebody else, but I thought, no, this is the guy. But obviously, as, as well as you mentioned about Eusebio, because Eusebio uh, came from Mozambique yes, as well, so there's a similar sort of background as to how he got involved in Portuguese football. But I think I'm right in saying that Peritoa actually lost a leg late in life. I would say died in abject poverty, but certainly um, not not with the wealth that such a talent would have. I mean, imagine a guy who scores that many goals these days. He, he talk about Haaland, Erling Haaland. Um, yes. That's stupid money to talk about now, and uh, he's... he's um, his agents looking to get him a net, a net, a million pound a week payments. And, and, and at the best, he's a promising talent. You know, this, this is a guy we're talking about, who was, as I say, statistically, 
in top class football, the best goal scorer of all time. That's the that's where the game stops being about football and it starts being about spreadsheets and Mino Raiola's yacht. The words the words legend are overused. I like uh, what about um, the words the game's gone is overused are overused. It's it's just it's just you it's the market. Um, I prefer to read pieces about the past. Stuart Horsfield's book about Brazil, Stephen Scragg's book about European competitions, and in fact this will go out. In finals week, so we will have just had the the UEFA Cup final. You know what I mean, Europa League final, UEL final, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we yeah. will have Chelsea. Obviously, I'll edit that out. If not, in the I won't in the UCL final. Um, but this we've come a long way from a time when John Neal uh, was the Chelsea manager in the nineteen eighties, and Chelsea were in the second division. Tell me about those days, Abuelo, Gary. Well, yeah, I mean, people, when you, you say you meet anybody about talking about football, who do you support? Oh, I support Chelsea. And immediately there's a reaction of how long have you been supporting them just since Mourinho, since, uh, uh, since Robinson? Well, no, I mean, I, my earliest memory of Chelsea is 1961, when we sold Jimmy Greaves, which I, I could never, what, what? I mean, I'd be five, five or six at the time. So, yeah, I remember the bad times as well. I remember when Chelsea really got relegated from the second division or what. But of course, these days the championship. In, but yeah, John Neal saved the club basically, and should have forever been heralded as the guy who did so. We built that massive new stand, basically bankrupt to the club. Um, but John Neal arrives and on a shoestring, but built a team that's that survived and prospered. Uh, an amazing man who uh, who died and not so long afterwards, he was obviously suffering from his heart. Um, but yeah, a, a, a real, a true Chelsea legend, and probably doesn't get the bit like Paratail does not get the uh, recognition that he truly deserves. Well, I'm positive that a book that has just come out, a much-delayed book, will go big on him. I'm looking forward to the accidental footballer, Pat Nevin, who signed for about three shillings and six uh, from Chelsea, who admired the wisdom of John Neal, who also signed Kerry Dixon. Um, I'm trying to get Pat Nevin on. I imagine that he will be popping up everywhere to plug this book. Was he different... I know he was involved in the PFA, but could you tell there was something different about yes. Pat Nevin? Yes, I mean, both on off the field, I mean, Pat Nevin was uh, unusual for a footballer in, in as much as he liked, he appreciated art, he appreciated the theatre, he appreciated final elements of culture. A bit like, he had some from the same sort of reaction as uh, Graham Lasseau did, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, Graham Lasseau, the Guardian, when he was reading that. But, but yeah, I mean, he is a talented player on the pitch as well. Um, I always think with um, a wide player, a tricky wide player, eventually they get worked out and they have to move further inside and become a midfield player. It's, the, the, the players that, that doesn't happen to are far and few between. Um, for example, one uh, who sort of always, always mentioned, and I'm thinking of the greatest players I've ever watched, like Jimmy Johnston, Celtic, who never actually, who, people never worked him out. Ryan Giggs. We never truly worked it out, but a lot of players who start out as as tricky wingers, you know, eventually they're moved because there's so much video analysis these days that you know um, these guys sitting, you know, hours and hours watching players and their their moves and what they do. They drop the shot on this way, they're going to do that, and if they put the foot over the ball, they're going to do that. And people get get sort of, uh, I say, it worked out, but um, it happened to Pat Nevin. After, I mean, after because he went to uh, Everton. I think after when he left Chelsea, but an exceptionally good player. And, uh, you know, when he was with us and uh, we got 
never remember winning Kerry Dixon and never put to, to put his, his nod on it into the Union bag. You know, he got half a chance of scoring goals. And no wonder you went up. Uh, which former Chelsea captain do you describe in these Football Times piece as someone possessing a winning mentality and, this is great, a tempestuous malevolence? Uh, is that Chopper Harris? Oh, no, a bit younger than that. Well, isn't that not Terry then, obviously? Uh, uh, between Harris and Terry came very football. small man. His son plays at youth level for Watford. Of course, of course. Dennis Wise, isn't it? Dennis Wise. Um, I think he, that, Wise. the child that he was holding when Chelsea won Henry. that cup. Henry, he's the kid at Watford. I can't forget Dennis Wise. Sorry, just uh, when you get that sort of mental block. Yeah, I, yes, I remember mentioning that. I didn't want to piece about Dennis. And uh, Derek, I, if anybody was a player who would sign there, would fit into that sort of image that a lot of non-Chelsea fans would know Chelsea, but you know, want to hate Chelsea. He'd fit right in there. Because he was the sort of guy who fans had, opposition fans had hated hate him and he'd love it. And Lampard took his number eight position um, did, yeah. and made it his oh, own. Um, tricky wingers who ended up playing inside. Dennis Wise is another example there. Oh, really? Yeah, well, he started as a wide player with Wimbledon. He was a winger. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Played, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a winger. He came to Chelsea as a winger. And he ended up playing inside in midfield. And there was a famous, I say famous occasion, the European Championship 2002, was it with England? got eliminated by Romania and uh, Kevin Keegan was coaching England at the time uh, no it wasn't 2002 2000 Keegan picked Wise to play on the right flank of midfield ahead of um, Stephen Manneman he wasn't played that position he hadn't played in that position for about five years and uh, didn't play particularly well and he got slated for it but just shows that Keegan was picking up a player on memory of what he used to do rather than what he was doing because he hadn't been a winger for a long time gosh well, I've, I've learnt something in this first half. Uh, we'll take some oranges and come back for the second half. 